Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Harriet Minter and you're listening to The Badass Women's Hour. On this week's show, it's a slightly different format, partly because there were two things that I really wanted to talk about and had amazing guests to talk with so I thought I'd share them with you because it's a bank holiday weekend and I did promise myself that I would try and minimize all work on a bank holiday and partly because the building site next to my flat has decided today is the day to really go for it on the drilling and that just doesn't make the best podcast background. So instead you've got two interviews from my weekly radio show on Talk Radio. The first is with Vonda Vipatska And it is about the race report. So you probably saw this published last week, the government's inquiry into race relations in the UK that has been pretty roundly panned because, well, it's conducted for a start by a man who thinks that slavery was an excellent opportunity for Africa. Never one of the best people, I think, to conduct a race report. Anyway, I talked to Vandra, who is the CEO of the Equalities Trust, all about why the report is flawed and what we can do to challenge it. And then I meet an absolutely incredible woman. Hella Pick is 96. She has been a journalist for nearly 50 years, or more than 50 years. She's been a journalist for more than 50 years. And her reporting basically took us all the way through the Cold War. She was one of the first female foreign correspondents. She reported on the death of JFK, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and many other moments from history. She's met incredible people and lived an amazing life. And her story is just fascinating. So I'm really excited to be able to bring her to the show. But first up, let's hear from Vonda. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Hi, Wanda. Hi, it's Vanda here. Nice to be here. Wanda. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell me, when you read the report, what was your reaction to it? Well, I think my reaction to the report started before I read it. Um, and, you know, I'm on record, as, as many people are, as mm-hmm. expressing our extreme disappointment that the commission was being chaired by Tony Sewell. So we, we sort of knew what was coming from that announcement. But I honestly think that, you know, we... We have been massively shocked, even considering that he was appointed chair. I mean, when we look at things like, you know, statements such as slavery was an opportunity to remodel Africans into into Britons. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm descended from slaves. <laughs> yeah. My I doing my ancestry DNA. You know, I found that most of my DNA came from West Africa, and my my ancestors were shipped over to the Caribbean mm-hmm. and were slaves. So, you know, to hear these sorts of things in the 21st century, that slavery was a great opportunity, you know, yeah. I think it's just appalling. And that's just one of the many, many things that are wrong with this report. 
One of the things that really struck me about the report is the... It feels like almost the hiding behind the phrase ethnic minorities. Right. Yeah, and that's that's one of the problems. I mean, actually, yeah. one of the few things I do agree with the report on, and, you know, believe me, there aren't many, mm-hmm. um, is that we must stop using this term BAME. Yeah. Because, you know, if we use the term black, Asian and ethnic minorities, then, you know, I'm, I'm part Polish. I'm an ethnic minority in terms of being Polish. I'm an ethnic minority in terms of being Caribbean. But, I mean, what we're doing is basically saying if you're white this is the default and everybody else goes into the same into the same categories and you know there are very different educational and life outcomes for children yeah. who are chinese for children who are black african for children who are black caribbean for children mm-hmm. who are mixed you know for children who are gypsy romans or travelers yeah. and so by putting everyone together it really just says you know here's a bunch of people and they're not white so let's just put them all in one category yeah Doreen Lawrence said this week that she feels this report has put race relations in the UK back by about 20 years. What do you think about that? Well, I think she's been quite generous, actually. Mm. I think this, you know, has really, really undone a lot of the work that many of us have been doing, you know, for decades. And for Doreen to say that, it must be so heartbreaking for her after everything she's been through, um, you know, to see this. And and the countless other mothers of of children that have been killed because of racism. And for all of our communities, you know, there's a... We've had report after report after report and no action. And now I think our fear is, is that action will be taken, but it will be on the basis of this report. And that's an absolute, not just a lost opportunity, but it's, it's so divisive and so harmful. What action do you think might be taken on the basis of this? Well, I think what we're seeing already is government ministers waiving this report and saying, mm-hmm. you know, look, there's no such thing as structural racism, so it's fine. We we live in a fantastic country and we're a beacon. You know, it's, it's part of this obsession, yeah. isn't it, of us being yeah. the best in the world at everything, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, <laughs> it's a very we, we have, strange mentality, yeah. You know, if we had friends saying they were the best at everything all the time, I think yeah. we'd pretty well stop seeing them, wouldn't we? So, you know, it is part of this very sort of nationalistic effort. And it's, but more importantly, what is very clear is that it's a bit, it's part of the government's sort of rhetoric about trying to split working class people who, you know, are going through a terrible time at the moment mm-hmm. with furlough, with a whole range of things, with COVID hitting the most deprived communities. And on top of it all, you know, this report is being used to try and divide people so that we see each other as enemies rather than, you know, working together and, and, and being together. It's it's really, really obvious what's what's happening with this. But what's important is that what they're trying to do is say that this is all about the individual. It's not yes. about structural inequality. Mm-hmm. It's not about a collective and a system. It's just about individual problems. So, you know, we'll just deal about deal with this on an individual level. I mean, one of the things that really struck me was there's a point in the report where they say something along the lines of, you know, you don't help yourself if you feel that you are going to be, if you feel the deck is stacked against you, then that's really part of the problem. <laughs> I was like, I, 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 I mean, I, as a white woman, was ashamed actually that anyone would have thought that was acceptable or useful commentary in 2021. Well absolutely and and as many of the academics have said you know this Mm. this flimsy report flies in the face of decades of peer-reviewed scientific research and I think Harriet you know if you flip it for a minute and if you if you put women 
yeah. um, in this rather than black mm-hmm. people and, you know, or BAME, as they want to call it, everyone who's yeah. not white. And you replace, the, you replace that with women. You know, we can see the structural sexism. We can see yeah. this agenda pay gap. We can see, you know, out of the FTSE 100, I think there's five or maybe mm-hmm. six women who lead companies. You know, we can see all of this. I mean, our economic, our political and our legal systems were created a couple of hundred years ago when only the very top privileged men, and they were white men, could hold any power. And so, you know, we are still in these systems that are really, really stacked against anyone who who really isn't, you know, a sort of white upper-class man. Mm. We saw David Lammy this week say that actually he just wasn't going to comment on this. Don't, you know, if you're the media, don't ask me to come and con- comment on this. I've, I've had enough, essentially. Is that, do you think, how the black community feels right now? I think many of us do. And I think, you know, we're torn between the fact that we have to get out there yeah. and, you know, talk about this and, and point it out for what it is. But, you know, we are tired of having to justify the things that happen to us every day. You know, yeah. the racism that we encounter and not just overt racism, but, you yeah. know, racism's in the system, the lack of promotion, the fact that, you know, disproportionately black workers are in the gig economy because they face racism in the workplace. And, you know, it really is a lot of people, you know, I pay tribute to a lot of people who've gone out on the airwaves and who've really had to talk about this. But, you know, we're tired and it's emotionally draining and we shouldn't have to, you know, very much. And I, and I bring it back as well for, you know, more of your, your mm-hmm. audience to, to recognize that, you know, we do this as women. Yeah. We do this as black people and it's tiring to have to mm-hmm. constantly justify the sexism, the racism mm. that we're facing. What would you like to see? I mean, I, I was, I would usually at this point ask, what would you like to see the government do here? But I think we know that there's not a lot they're going to do. Uh, what would you like to see the opposition do here? Oh, actually, can we have the opposition do something that is uh, productive and useful? Well, I would like to see, I mean, I, you know, obviously we've seen people like Marshall Dakota, um, speak mm-hmm. out, um, and other black and Asian members of, of the opposition. And, and to be yeah. honest, I've been really heartened by the fact that many people have stepped up and spoken out against it. But I think, you know, we do re- need real, really firm commitments and swift denials of, of these things yeah. from the opposition. You know, we, we, we don't want to wait for it. We want, racism to be placed up there as one of the key things that need to be tackled and to see more suggestions and action for what can actually happen. Yeah. Because we know what the answers are. You know, we know what the answers are. We've had report after report after report, but Mm -hmm. this needs to be firmly embedded in policies going forward. Yeah. Fonda, thank you so much for talking to us tonight and taking the time out of your evening. I really appreciate it. Fonda Wapaska there, the Executive Director of the Equality Trust. That was Vanda Papaska from the Equalities Trust talking about the race report. Now, my next guest is Hella Pick. She is a journalist, a nonagenarian. Is that what you, is that the term for somebody in the 90s? I think it is. A nonagenarian. She has danced with JFK. She has had tea with Gorbachev. She's lived an amazing, incredible life. She talks to me about what she learned about the world and herself. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. 
BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In her 96 years. Hi, Hella. Good evening. What a pleasure to be with you. Oh, well, thank you so much for making time for us. You've written your new book, Invisible Walls, which is essentially about your life and the incredible career you've had, but also the beginnings of it and how how you've experienced the world. I wanted to ask you to start with, why did you call it Invisible Walls? Well, because this is a very personal book Mm. and I have described the fact that uh, I originally came from Austria um, and I was one of the victims of Nazi persecution and came to England on a children's transport when I was just eight years old and then, of course, made my life in England. I had my education here and started work here and have more or less lived here ever since, except uh, for many years when I was in America. But throughout this period, because you feel uprooted if you start your life as a refugee, I felt that I suffered all my life from certain insecurities, which all my success failed to resolve. And that's why I call the book Invisible Walls. I feel I've somehow all my life been hand in breaking out and finding fulfillment as a result of having started life as a refugee. So there are my invisible walls. I... But I can't complain. It's been a good life all the same. <laughs> well, it's been an amazing life. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is such an incredible piece of self-knowledge and self-awareness, right? To see those walls and know that that's what you've been pushing against. But can I ask you, what drew you to journalism and particularly to international reporting? I fell into it. It, I think luck has played a great part in my life. I fell into journalism quite accidentally. I was looking for work, answered an advertisement and for something, for a commercial editor for a magazine called West Africa. I got the job. It launched me into West African politics at a time when the colonial empire was breaking up and negotiating for its independence. And from then on, I just got so interested in international affairs. And this has remained with me ever since. I'm a dreadful news hound. <laughs> and, uh, I 
spent far too much time listening to news, reading newspapers, and um, <laughs> so there you are. It's an affliction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this. Um, I love this idea that you, you sort of fell into it and you got a bit lucky because I think so many of us sort of say that about our careers. My first job was as a commercial editor, so I <laughs> which was a bit of a whim as well. But I think we say that about our careers, and yet there's a sort of a a thread or something that draws us to them. So I'm wondering for you, is there, you say you've been a news hound your whole life. What is it about the news that you find so fascinating, that you love so much? Well, first of all, why I was so pleased when I got that first job is that um, I had realized I was not made for a nine-to-five job. <laughs> I had no joy because I, my very first job after I graduated was in market research. And, the, you know, I had to be in the office at nine in the morning and I'd be there till five o'clock. And, yes, I learned a lot. And as it happened, I learned about West Africa, which is why I landed with that job afterwards. But for me, journalism was ideal because you're not, you have to organize your life yourself. You, you're not working for fixed hours. You probably work much harder than if you had an office job. But it's fun and it varies. It's, it always changes. Every day is different. You must have been at that time the only or certainly one of very few female foreign correspondents. Did you, were you aware of that? To start with, I was very much aware <laughs> of it because when I, I was going out to West Africa, I was literally, I think, the only European woman journalist who was covering those rather obscure, well, not obscure events, but important events, but not in the main focus of attention. And uh, I was surrounded by men and, you know, they were they were good to me once they realized that I was not foolish and stupid and that I was learning. They sort of, you know, they, they took me in as, as a comrade. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I really had a very privileged start as a woman journalist. But, of course, once I started working for The Guardian, and uh, I was at that point in New York at the United Nations, there were... Just a smattering of women there as well. But it was still, you know, we were just a tiny minority still. And it was quite hard to be accepted as a professional. But at the same time, I've always maintained at that time, because there were so few women journalists, you stood out and people remembered you. And you actually often had easier access to people simply because they knew who you were. I always said that I think that's a bit of an advantage in that, you know, if you've got 10 men sat around a boardroom table and there's only one woman, everyone will remember the one woman, sometimes for all the wrong reasons, but they will at least remember. Exactly, yes. <laughs> and um, it's quite useful. <laughs> well, was it useful for you? Because you have interviewed some incredible people. We're talking, you know, world leaders at a time when the world was I think, you know, in one of its most chaotic states, your post-war, Cold War period, you are interviewing the people on either side of those Cold War. How do you get those interviews? And then what is it like to be in a room with people who literally hold half the world in their power? Well, I think just to answer your last question <laughs> first, it gives you a thrill, of course, but you also realize, you know, these are people who have an interest in communicating with you because you're then 
going to write something and they hope that you will write something on the minds that they, <laughs> they would like to, to see in, in the written word or the spoken word. But how to get to them? Well, I suppose, you know, you start off small and then you come, become a little bigger and people read you and they know who you are. And you have to win people's trust and their respect. And I've always you know, worked on the principle that if people tell you something in confidence, you don't then go out and quote them literally, but you paraphrase <laughs> and you convey the sense without actually betraying their trust. And I think so much of it depends on the way people regard you and what to write. It isn't just because you've got a pretty face. Mm. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's not necessarily. <laughs> it helps, no doubt, but it's not the most essential part of it. <laughs> many of my male colleagues, in, on many occasions, I would feel that they had much better access than I had. You know, it's, it's quite a competitive field. Is <laughs> it? <laughs> A bit in your book where you talk about how a request for coffee on board a Soviet ship led to a chat with Mikhail Gorbachev. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, that, that was one of my more amusing experiences. <laughs> this was uh, in the Cold War days, gradually as the Cold War became a little less cold, there were a series of summit meetings between the Soviet leaders and the American presidents. And this was one occasion where Mikhail Gorbachev was meeting President Bush Sr. in Malta. That's where they had agreed to meet. Nobody had realized at the time when they fixed the time of the meeting that the season was a stormy season, the date that they fixed. Anyway, the, the Russians were clever enough and they came in a regular boat and anchored it in the harbor of Malta. But the Americans thought it would be much more secure to be out at sea and Bush was in a destroyer that was hovering near the harbour, but not in the harbour. The storms were heavy. Anyway, I was in a small group of journalists, uh, we called it a pool of people, who were allowed onto the Soviet boat just to witness what was going to be the summit meeting between the two leaders. And we were sitting in the lobby of the ship and nothing was happening. And another colleague of mine and I, two of us, we two women, the only women in the group, uh, said, oh, God, if only we could have a cup of coffee. We saw a uniformed officer walking past us, and we, we said, could we have some coffee while we wait? <laughs> and uh, he said to us, come with me. And we looked at him, and he said, I'm the captain of the ship. Yeah. And so anyway, he took us to, through corridors. We ended up in a, in a very large reception room where there was a bar and a coffee machine and everything and the room was quite empty and uh, somebody served us coffee and suddenly Mr. Gorbachev walks in then his foreign minister uh, the head of the army an admiral anyway it was you know a high powered group to put it mildly and Mrs. Gorbachev appeared as well and they saw us 
And Gorbachev and Mrs. Gorbachev just sat down with us and chatted. And it turned out that Bush was unable to get onto the boat because of the heavy storms. And they were joking and said, shall we send a submarine for him? <laughs> and then we discovered that the American ambassador was actually on the boat, but he'd been sequestered off into some room and wasn't allowed into this gathering. Anyway, this went on for about 45 minutes. And then they decided that Bush really wasn't going to get to this ship and so they told us we'd better get off <laughs> <laughs> so that was a, a memorable event <laughs> and the two leaders did meet the next day <laughs> on dry land <laughs> you've met all of these mm -hmm. incredible history defining people who mm -hmm. surprised you the most surprised me the most mm. well um in america uh I would, I would say President Johnson for everything that he did to advance universal voting rights mm. and really end the sort of deep segregation of the Deep South. So I think he was turned out to be far more remarkable in the way he handled all those reforms than anyone had anticipated. And uh, I think he, well, he's no longer underrated because some wonderful biographies have been written about him, which I think has really portrayed him the way he really was. In, in the Cold War, the, or the closing stages of the Cold War, well, I think I would pick, pick out Gorbachev, not because of our meeting in Malta, but because of the reforms that he initiated. And after all, it was the end of the Soviet empire. He did recognize that the world had changed and that he had to change with it. And uh, though he resisted it at first, he, in the end, understood that he had to accept the reunification of Germany and that really was the end of the Cold War. So, well, Gorbachev, of course, is still alive, but uh, I think he, uh, I would say, just as Mrs. Thatcher admired him, <laughs> I'm not the world's greatest admirer of Mrs. Thatcher, but she was absolutely right about Gorbachev <laughs> when she said, this is a man I can do business with. <laughs> You were a foreign correspondent for The Guardian, I think, for 30-plus years. Mm -hmm. What was it like to leave that? It was hard. It was, mm -hmm. it was very hard. And um, at the time, I thought, this is the end. Now I'm going to be an old lady. And I was not prepared to be an old lady. <laughs> and uh, I was lucky because after sort of weeping, at myself and thinking the world had come to an end as far as I was concerned. I was asked to write a couple of books. Then I went to work for George Weidenfeld, the actual founder of the of Weidenfeld and Nixon, the publishers who have now published my book. And um, he, um, had a, he started a, a think tank which was concerned at the time with bridge building across countries, across cultures and many things. And I, I for several years, organized a Europe-China media exchange, which was 
great, very, very interesting and got me to China where I hadn't been before. And anyway, all sorts of new vistas opened for me and I really had a very exciting and interesting time working with George Weinfeld and forgot all about retiring and decided I never will retire. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to where we started at the beginning of this interview when I asked you about why Invisible Walls and you talked about the legacy of being a refugee. Do you think that you have in any way come to terms with that legacy? Well, yes and no. Hmm. I think, of course, you, know, you, you have to come to terms with what happened to you. I've understood that this is something that isn't unique to me. It's something that I think most refugees feel. People deal with the problem differently, but somehow... There's always something that is lacking. If you are uprooted from the culture that you were born into and the country you were born into, it never stops affecting you in some ways. I have to say that a friend of mine who has read my book, who is a psychiatrist, also believes that some of my insecurities stem from the fact that my parents were divorced and I never really got to know my father at all because he totally rejected me. So yeah. <laughs> I've got, a, got an additional explanation for the invisible book. <laughs> this psychiatrist finds reasons for everything. Uh, <laughs> how did this sort of, I guess, this uprooting early on in your childhood go from Austria to the UK? But then also the reason you came from Austria to the UK is because you, your family are Jewish. So how do you identify yourself now? Do you think of yourself as Austrian, British, Jewish? We all have several identities. Mm. Uh, you know, you don't just have one identity. I would say my dominant identity, well, twin dominant identities <laughs> is, first of all, Europe. I mean, I feel I'm a European, mm. and this is why I'm obviously not a Brexiteer, yeah. and I still think that Britain made a mis great mistake. Mm -hmm. But for me... The cosmopolitan identity is important, the European identity, and the other identity to which I came through long years of thinking and with considerable reluctance at first is, in the end, my Jewish identity. As a child in England, and even as a young woman, I could not even admit to being Jewish, but that was the, quite obviously the result of what yeah. happened to me. And it took me a very, very long time. And I must, you know, I don't come from a re religious background. So it is the Jewish culture that I consider my identity. And yes, I think Europe and Jewish are the two key identities. But of course, the British identity comes <laughs> into it as well. But I think Brexit somehow has affected that concept of being fully integrated with Britain as the sort of absolute top of the pops as far as identity is concerned because it alienates me, this, this rejection of Europe. It's, uh, I, you know, I, I can talk about it endlessly, but I'm not going to bore you. <laughs> you wouldn't. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's changed what it means to be British for a lot of people. Actually, I would count myself in that. Yeah, I think it's split identity for a lot of us, is what I would yes. say about Brexit. Mm. There's an interesting thing here, which is you talked about, you know, identifying as European and coming to terms with the Jewish identity. How then do you feel or did you feel 
about Germany and particularly, you know, kind of during that Cold War period. How do you reconcile your feelings about that? Well, I've often asked myself where reason and where feeling comes into all of this <laughs> uh, because I identified myself with Austria very easily yeah. after the end of the war, which in a way sounds absurd, but it's true. And with Germany, no, I didn't. You know, I was asking questions endlessly, as so many other people did about what did Germans do and so on. And then um, through my work, because I've been reporting, believe it or not, about the negotiations for Britain's membership of the European Economic Community, <laughs> Britain going into Europe. And I have met uh, uh, Willie Brandt, who at that time was still foreign minister of, of Germany, because he, I used to yeah. speaking German. I managed to infiltrate the, um, the German briefings at, the, at various meetings. And so anyway, he, he knew who I was. And then he became chancellor, and then the Guardian had its... 150th anniversary celebration and there was a huge dinner at the Dorchester Hotel where the great and the good and perhaps the not so good were all invited and Willie Brandt was the, was the guest of honour and there was some news story running that involved Germany and the Guardian asked me to try and collar him after the dinner and get him to interview him so I, I walked up to him after the dinner and uh, said you know can you have time for a few questions and he said, no, not here. There are too many people. Come back to my hotel. <laughs> and, uh, so, well, me too didn't exist in those days. And I went, I went back to the hotel. And uh, as it happens, um, uh, he just wanted to talk. And we, he, had, he had a suite. And we sat, I remember we sat on a sort of w a window bench and, and looked out onto Knightsbridge. And, and we talked about Germany and about his philosophy. And his ideas and uh, it was all perfectly all right <laughs> and, uh, me too would not have been affected <laughs> and anyway that conversation somehow turned my uh, com completely converted me if you like to, to thinking differently about Germany and from that time onwards um, you know Germany is well, I was reporting quite a lot out of Germany, including uh, the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, which was a, you know, a very different place. But West Germany, then ultimately the, the United Germany, was to me, uh, has become to me really a, a country that I enjoy. I have many friends there. It's one of the soundest democracies that we have in Europe today. Um, you know, they have a federal constitution that really works well. And, uh, well, for 15, <laughs> 15 years, it's, it's from, you know, had, probably had the best politician in Europe running the country. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I've been to Berlin a lot and other parts of Germany. And yeah. uh, I've come to understand the country and... Mm totally reconciled to what happened. Well, mm. not reconciled to the Holocaust, of course, yeah. but I mean, reconciled to it's Germany a as a, a contemporary country mm. that deserves to be highly valued mm. as a democracy. Hella, it's been so lovely talking to you. Just before we finish, can mm. I ask you just quickly, writing this book now at the age of 96, looking back on your life, what would you want 
younger Hella to know? What would you tell your younger self? About me? Hmm. Well, I suppose I would want them to think of me as a, a journalist who, who did act as a kind of pioneer, who did establish the fact that, you know, women journalists, mm -hmm. I mean, that helped to establish that women journalists were the equals of every, any man and women better. And I think <laughs> also, you know, today, you know, well, as you know, I mean, the media are full of women. And, so, you know, I can't say that I personally recruited them, but I hope <laughs> that by, by, by some small example, I've been able to show what it is to, to, to be a woman journalist Definitely. and to be a good journalist. But, um, you know, I, I would, if I may just say that, if you end up being a journalist like me who spends, you know, half their life traveling because mm. of the nature of their work, it can create havoc with your personal life. And it certainly did with my life. So, I mean, uh, I would caution, you know, and I think many other journalists who, who had the kind of work that would yeah. kind of work that I did, we've all experienced that. It does create problems for personal relationship. You make a lot of friends, but um, whether you make permanent, loving relationships, that is the great challenge. Yeah. And to be a good journalist at the same time. <laughs> I think that is... A beautiful note to end on. Hello, thank you so much. It has been so lovely to talk to you and uh, your book is wonderful. Invisible Walls, which is a journalist in search of her life, is out now by the fabulous Hella Pick. That was the awe-inspiring Hella Pick. That's all for this week's show, but I will be back next week with the normal format, you know, a bit of chat, an interview, a question, all of that stuff. You can, of course, in the meantime, listen back to over a hundred amazing episodes and come and talk to me on social media. You can find me at Harriet Minter on all the socials. And if you liked this episode, please do rate, review, subscribe. It helps other people find us. And it's just a nice thing to see after a bank holiday. Take care. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.